Good morning, church. Um, we're looking at this morning at uh, the idea of putting off partiality, or I guess you could abbreviate and say we're looking at impartiality, or the, the value, the need to be impartial as Christians, as uh, disciples of Christ. And, and I was wrestling with how on earth can I connect this with Mother's Day? And let me begin by, by wishing all the mothers happy happy Mother's Day. And and at first I thought, what a, what, a, what a wretched state I'm in, what a terrible thing that's befallen me to try and make these connections. But then I thought, really, when you think about motherhood, impartiality is one of the first things that really should come to mind. Um, we even have those sort of sayings, you know, he's got a face that only a mother could love. Now, nobody's ever said that to me, not to my face at least. <laughs> Maybe behind my back, I don't know. But it conveys this idea of the absolute unconditional nature that is so typical of a mother's love. And um, uh, so really, impartiality is, is quite appropriate on, our, on this, our mother's day. I'd like to begin by um, just considering... Um, Lady Justice. Most of us, I think, would, would have heard of Lady Justice and that, that would make sense to us. In most of the world, certainly the Western world, I guess, that image of uh, the woman, uh, blindfolded, typically, uh, holding up the set of scales and a sword in the other hand is the image that we associate with the justice system. Uh, many courtrooms have uh, a picture, if not a, um, a statue, if you will, to sort of represent who or what this institution is, is all about. And, of course, when we think about partiality or impartiality, the significance of the blindfold is particularly uh, of interest to us because, and again, that phrase we, we're probably familiar with, justice is blind. That is, justice is, is not distracted by um, other considerations than simply and, and, and solely the truth, blind to all other considerations, as it were. And, of course, when we think about partiality, we think about perhaps something more along these lines. What happens when Lady Justice peeks out from behind the blindfold? When Lady Justice isn't as impartial as she could be, as she should be, if truly justice is going to be uh, executed. And this really is not a theme that ought to surprise any of us as students of scripture, as um, those that not just have an interest in, but we are engaged with the broader story of the history of the people of God. And just think about it for a moment. No lesser story, no lesser characters than Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, and Jacob's deception of his father Isaac. We were all, I'm sure, very familiar with that story. And part of the background to that was the, the favouritism that Rebecca had towards Jacob over Esau, who it seems was actually Isaac's favourite. Um, moving into the next generation, as it were, Jacob himself, and there's an element of kind of what goes around, comes around sort of thing, um, and, and the favouritism that he placed upon 
his son Joseph, you remember the incident with the, 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 the privilege, the favouritism represented in the, the receiving of the, 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 the many coloured coat, for example. And we know that all of the events uh, that unfolded as a result of that, of that favouritism, um, very significant in the broader story of, um, of scripture. And of course, in more, Modern times, we're very aware, acquainted with uh, other um, forms of partiality, and we might use words like uh, prejudice, uh, prejudice, etc. The, the idea of racism, for example, looms large in our very recent history. Um, and, and in very recent times, the, the whole phenomenon that's been labelled identity politics where basically uh, you have, well, it's like an extreme form of tribalism, really. People separate from other people on the basis of, of their particular issue or, or, or identity, and that becomes, um, that becomes the all-encompassing uh, purpose for life, which, of course, puts them in opposition to those that don't share that, uh, that identity. And really, I don't know what your sense of our society is at the moment, but, but I get a, an overwhelming sense of concern, discomfort, uh, uneasiness, where it just seems like we are increasingly becoming more and more fractured. Uh, you might consider, for example, we used to talk in terms of common sense. Well, it's just common sense. If I could pick an obvious example, a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. It's common sense, isn't it? Well, no. (laughs) It's not any longer common in terms of our shared views, our shared understandings of of reality. And the the net result of that is an enhanced sense of, almost a foreboding sense of fracturing in our, in our society. And, and I'm trying to sort of use this as a segue into our discussion about partiality or non-partiality uh, to emphasise the relevance and the importance of it. This isn't just some uh, peculiar theological word or concept that has no uh, particular relevance to, to our lives. It is, it is of the same sort of substance of the, the themes of, of love and um, uh, of of we spoke a few weeks ago, being mindful of the tongue, the use of the tongue, uh, seeking to bless rather than curse with our tongue. It, it, it's nestled in that field, in that genre of really fundamentally important things, not just from a Christian point of view, but I want to say from a, uh, the perspective of being a, a citizen of the world as a human being, because I, I suspect that really a, a large part of the future of humanity hinges upon this sort of issue, whether we choose to, uh, to remain uh, partial or impartial. Just a couple of definitions. Um, these are taken from Strong's Concordance, so they're pretty basic ideas. That The Hebrew term, norcha, um, to regard or to recognise, and that's the term in the Hebrew scriptures that is often translated as favouritism or, or partiality. Um, in the New Testament, and I'm not even going to, well, I can, I can have a go at it. Proselpolemteo. Big word, big meaning. 
the idea of having respect of persons uh, favouring especially one over the other, showing, showing partiality. One thing I think is really neat, and, and sometimes you get this really interesting insight from the etymology of words, um, with the Hebrew term lorka, just to remind you of that image of Lady Justice taking a peek when she ought to be remaining blind and therefore totally impartial, she takes that peek. And, and it's interesting that that conveys that from the Hebrew, the same sense of having a look regarding recognising. Now that can be a positive thing, but it can also be a negative thing in terms of the judgement that you might make as a result of that peeking under the blindfold, as it were. In terms of English definitions, I think the language is pretty well known to us. Partiality, um, having a particular fondness or liking. And so synonyms like preference or affinity, tendency or, or a leaning in one direction or another. But of course, partiality in English, as it was in Hebrew and, and, and Greek, uh, is, is sort of one of those words that lies on a spectrum, as it were, and so the milder form, the neutral, morally neutral form, as it were, um, having a particular fondness or liking, but we're probably more inclined to think of B, definition B, the state or quality of being partial, the tendency to favour unfairly, giving unfair preferential treatment. And so we've got synonyms like bias or unjust, unfair, favouritism, Prejudice, discrimination, nepotism and cronyism, giving preference to your buddies, giving preference to family members, that sort of thing. This spectrum idea, so you move from definition A, like or liking less, all the way through to declaring something to be worthy or unworthy. And so it's, it's, it's that idea of a moral uh, value judgment involved. So there's our word study, there's our definitions, as it were, so we've got a good idea of what we're talking about as we move forward. And I want to begin by going back to Leviticus. And I want to read this context because I want everybody to appreciate the context, the way that, that this, this idea of partiality or impartiality, the need for impartiality, is nested among a whole lot of other moral precepts that are contained in the law. So beginning in verse 9, for example, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And that's an interesting insight into God's concern that his people, Israel, would be a people who would be compassionate, who would be merciful, who would be um, considerate of their neighbour, particularly their neighbour who was more uh, perhaps disadvantaged or marginalised in some way. Don't try and eke the maximum profit. Be generous. And in that sense, be sloppy. <laughs> Leave stuff on the ground, knowing that it's going to bless those who are, who are in need. Verse 11, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. So important, so foundational to any society to function. Can you imagine in a society where we don't trust one another, how do, how do we function? How do we, how do we operate? 
if we can't trust one another, if, 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 if a handshake, as in the, the, the proverbial good old days, you know, my word is my bond, uh, we, we make a deal on a, on a handshake. Well, sadly, we've moved well away from that ideal to the point now where, you know, you need to be sure you get that signature on the contract so that it's legally binding in anticipation that they might, they probably will try and renege somehow. It's difficult to operate in that sort of society. And so simple honesty, truthfulness is critical to the well-being of any civilization. Verse 12, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbour. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. That's interesting. The law of Moses had a policy about the disabled. And there it is. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Do not resent them as if they're less than worthy in some sense because they have a disability. And don't put a stumbling block. Don't make their life harder than it needs to be. They're good principles to run uh, a godly society upon. And notice verse 15, specifically relevant to our concerns this morning. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favouritism to the great, but judge your neighbour fairly. Now we skip on down to verse um, uh, 18 there. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord, says God. There's that summative principle. Love your neighbour as yourself. And of course that's precisely where Jesus is citing in Matthew when he's questioned by that lawyer, you'll remember. Um, Isaac made reference to it this morning in the context of, of, uh, of his song leading. Um, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Well, love God and love your neighbour. That's where Jesus is getting that second part of, that, uh, of the, the, the golden rule, as it were. Love your neighbour as yourself. But just quickly before we move on, notice again verse 15, something that I think is very interesting. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favouritism to the great. And I wonder if you caught that. You see, my experience in society today, that's a little bit out of sync. Because with the whole gamut of postmodernism, identity politics, political correctness, the bias needs to be towards the poor, the lesser, the marginalised, the disadvantaged. Isn't that the way that we're talking these days in our society? And so guess what? The way we do that is by pushing down those powerful ones, put them in their place. After all, we all know they've got power, power corrupts. They only get there because of their corruption. They deserve everything we get. Whew. 
Well, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. It's not biblical justice. It's not biblical impartiality. Notice here, do not show partiality to who? To the poor. Don't show partiality to the poor or favouritism to the great. Be impartial, be just, be fair towards all groups, if you will. I just thought that was very interesting. Very interesting. Sometimes, sometimes I think um, believers can assume that, that uh, some of the seemingly good stuff that we hear in the world is, oh yes, that's good, that's biblical. Well, you know what? Very often it's not biblical once you scratch under the surface. Biblically speaking, we need to be a people that are impartial towards all types, all classes of people. And I hope to explain to you this morning why that's the case. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and, 16 and 17, just for one of any number of examples we could cite from the Old Testament, from the law of Moses. I charge your judges at the time, this is Moses speaking to Israel, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly, whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. That's interesting. No distinction between nationality, an Israelite and an Israelite, treat them fairly, an Israelite and a non-Israelite, treat them fairly. It's pretty simple, pretty consistent. Do not show partiality in judging. Here both small and greater alike, there we go again, that fairness thing, do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you and I will hear it. We'd read pretty much the same thing in Deuteronomy 16. And the reason is, if we notice... Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we get an inkling of the why. Why? The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. It is fundamentally necessary for a people, whether we think of ourselves as individuals, creatures made in the image of God, or for a collective, a community of creatures made in the image of God, that we seek to reflect God, his character, his goodness, his righteousness, his justice, reflect that through our lives. Again, whether we're considering our life as an individual or as a collective, as a society, We do it because that's who God is. Interesting, it spills over into the New Testament. Here, 1 Timothy chapter 5, you may not have, you've probably read these words many times, but you may not have thought of it this way. And what's really radically, distinctively Christian, at least in theory, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favouritism. Even those that might have some sort of a functionary office, if you will, in the church, 
the likes of elders or Timothy as, as an evangelist. They're not above the law, as it were. They are in all ways and at all points, like all of us, on the same playing field when it comes to issues of justice and the demands, the, the responsibilities that goes um, to, that, to meet that end. Acts chapter 10, again, we get back to that familiar theme. Why, we might ask? Because God is a God of justice. God is a God of impartiality. Uh, Acts 10, for example, Peter began to speak. This is Peter addressing Cornelius and his household, the very first uh, Gentiles to be converted. Um, I realise now how true it is that God does not show favouritism. Romans chapter 2, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. And all of these words translated in the English, partiality, favouritism, they come from the same root idea, root word. When it comes to behaviour, when it comes to racial difference, Jew or Gentile, good or bad, God is blind. He just calls a spade a spade and deals impartially, deals without favouritism. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, I think is, is important to acknowledge in this in this context because this context is so commonly misunderstood and misapplied today in Christ Jesus says Paul you are all children of God through faith for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free there is nor is there male and female For you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And I find it really interesting, I don't suspect it's a coincidence at all, the categories you'll notice that Paul uses here. And he says, essentially, this is the way it is in the world. But in the church, it's not so. You see, in the church, we are all accepted. We all come to God on the same basis, our faith in Christ Jesus. We all undergo the same initiation rite, as it were, being baptised into Christ. In a sense, you know, faith is the, is, is the means that brings us to God through Christ and the time, the occasion when there's the crossing of the line from outside to inside is when we're baptised into Christ. Paul's point here is it all applies though to everybody across the board, whether you are a Jew or something else, 
whether you are rich or poor, whether you're a male or a female, in Christ all of those distinctions say nothing in contrast to the world, says nothing about one's acceptability to God, one's value in God's sight. But that's the means by which the world makes its judgments, isn't it? Race, sex, and our socioeconomic status. I'm reminded the Titanic, and I'm kind of anticipating that almost everybody, at least in the, in, in the room here, would be familiar with that movie. Classic movie. If you haven't seen it, you ought to see it. Cinematography is, is wonderful. The acting's even pretty good. The social commentary is outstanding because if you did see the movie, if you recollect, it pulls together all of those various categories that human beings tend to place one another. All the conceivable classes of persons from the wealthiest and most sophisticated to the poorest and crudest of individuals, they're all there on board. They're all there on board and they're all separated along the lines of Race, socioeconomic status, and gender. But then the boat went down. The boat went down, and all of the rules changed. And all of those different classifications and nuances upon which we base value judgment, you're more worthy than that person who's more worthy than that person because of this or that. All of it boils down to this. You are either a survivor or not a survivor. Regardless of all the other distinctions, it really comes down to that. You're either a survivor or you're not a survivor. And I want to suggest to you that that relates directly to the way that God views the world. From God's point of view, there are only two classes of people, those who are in Christ and those who are not. And I don't think that's an oversimplification. That's the bottom line. You are either in Christ, regardless of whether you're a male or a female, rich or poor, regardless of your racial or ethnic background, We all have equal access to God through Christ. Or we're not. All other differences are inconsequential. All other differences have no bearing upon one's value and status in God's eyes. Remember the image of Lady Justice blind to the differences? God is not saying, Paul was not saying in Galatians that there's no, more, no longer any distinction between uh, uh, masters and servants, rich and poor, or between men and women, or between Jew and Greek. He's not saying as if all of those differences are obliterated, as if they don't exist anymore, which seems to be the way some people want to interpret these passages from Paul. What he's saying is those distinctions that are very defining in the world go back ancient history all the way through to the present 
in Christ, they don't name who you are. They don't name your value or determine your value. All that matters is whether you're in Christ or not. And God wants us to see the world and others through his eyes. Take away from this morning is going to be that statement. God wants us to see the world and others through his eyes. Difficult to talk about impartiality and not at least touch on James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. And that's worth underlining. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Now at this point, if we don't get anything else from James, it's, he's saying this is important. Not showing favouritism. Being impartial, if we claim to be a disciple of Christ, is an important issue. Suppose a man, he gives an example, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, he's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there and sit on the floor at my feet, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Discriminating. Not to be confused with discerning. We have to be discerning. Discerning right from wrong. The will of God from not the will of God. But that's not what's being spoken of here. This is discriminating. As we often use in in our policies and laws today, anti-discrimination laws. And it presupposes a sense of unfairness, injustice involved in, in making those separations, as it were. Discriminating among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. It's kind of interesting. We cast our minds back to the Garden of Eden. The temptation. In the day that you eat of this fruit, you will become like God. Knowing, determining, choosing for yourself, good and evil. You get to decide, you get to judge. And in theory that sounds great. But the reality is, maybe not 100% of the time, but much of the time we end up, how does James describe it? We end up becoming judges with evil thoughts. We misuse, misapply our judgments. That's why it's so fundamentally important as Christians that we value God's revelation in his word. We need to be concerned about not so much what we think, what we think, even to the point of our consciences, is only as good as, as how well informed they are, our thoughts, our consciences, in light of God's will. That's why ad nauseum you'll hear from this context and other contexts in the church 
we need to we need to be serious about studying scripture we need to be serious about understanding and living out the word of god precisely because of that phenomenon things might seem right in our own eyes but that's not the issue it's whether it's right in in god's eyes that's the challenge discriminating discriminating among yourselves to become judges with evil thoughts we we don't take god's job from him that's god's prerogative when we do try to do it, we almost always mess it up. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? He goes on to, to, to clarify that you know, you're giving preference to the rich and the famous, but they're the very ones that are making life difficult for you. Don't play that game. Don't play the world's game. Down in verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, here we go again, love your neighbour as yourself. You are doing right, but if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. That's an interesting contrast that James makes, isn't it? On the one hand, you've got love your neighbour as yourself. And on the other hand, opposed to that, show favouritism. Show favouritism. What's wrong with showing favouritism? It's not to love your neighbour as yourself. It's to judge with evil thoughts. It's to buy into the game of value judgments. They're more important than them. He's more valuable than her. Leave it alone. You are doing right, but if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The perfect law of liberty. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I think if I understand James correctly, the connection with the idea of love your neighbour as yourself, when we look at our neighbour and we, we might be tempted to judge something that they might be doing, as being making them worthy or unworthy. But if we, can, if we can look at them through the filter of God's eyes, which confronts us with issues of compassion and mercy and grace, and in that mix we might be reminded of our own status before God, that we stand only because of the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. If we can look through that at another person, we're going to be a whole lot more reticent, a whole lot more cautious about making value judgments or demonstrating favouritism. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I can't resist connecting this with the Sermon on the Mount and I'm increasingly impressed with how fundamental the Sermon on the Mount 
is and, and, and I would argue should be for any, any Christian, for any disciple of Christ. Again, familiar words, I'm sure. I want to bring them to your memory though. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that they may be children of your Father in heaven. How so, Jesus? Well, speaking of the Father in heaven, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's impartial. He's no favoritism with God. He blesses all. If you love those who love you, being partial, playing favourites, then what reward will you get? Are you not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's that, that, that closing um, argument, as it were. Why? Because that's the way God is. And we want to be like God. Now, I'm sure everyone in this room is familiar with the, the three Greek terms that are translated love in our English translations. Eros, which speaks of love oriented towards self. Passion. Not necessarily morally wrong. Uh, we can be passionate in, in a good sense as well as passionate in, a, in a, an immoral or, or negative sense. Uh, phileo, love that is mutually beneficial. We usually talk about friendship in that sense. Uh, a term that's not used in, in the New Testament, storge, uh, speaking of family love. Though interestingly, the, the antonym of storge is used in, by, by Paul in um, Romans chapter 1, where he talks about unnatural affection, where children don't love their parents. The opposite to storge. And finally, of course, agape, uh, love that is oriented towards serving the other, unconditional, even sacrificial. And therefore, there is no room for partiality or favoritism if we understand and we're living out of agape properly. And of course, agape is, is, is nine times out of ten uh, the Greek term that is being used by the writers of Scripture when they talk about the love of God and, and the love that we're called to uh, uh, as disciples of Christ to be uh, bearing towards one another, towards our, towards our neighbour. So imagine this, just to quickly cement this in your mind. Um, me, uh, Eros, pointing to me. Not necessarily wrong. But, but that's, the, that's the character of Eros. Um, uh, the, the character of Phileo, a double-ended arrow pointing both ways, me and you. And then finally, of course, agape, an arrow pointing away from self towards the other. How can I serve you? How can I, how can I bless you? Now, I've introduced that thought to jump to this one, and this will be, this is next to our last slide. Um, this is an interesting model. Uh, it's that there's nothing new. I can't even remember where I downloaded this from. But in terms of uh, social sciences, etc., it's quite a, a common um, um, uh, uh, breakdown or way of trying to explain uh, the social phenomenon of um, justice as opposed to injustice, etc. On the left-hand side, there you'll notice what's described as reality. Uh, one goes. Uh, I'm sorry, one gets more than is needed while the other gets less than what's needed. Um, There's a huge disparity. And that's the world as it operates on the basis of eros, me, selfishness. 
What's in it for me? I don't care about the other person. I'm just interested in, in building my own little empire. If that comes at the expense, if, if, if somebody else is collateral damage, you know what? Bad luck. It's dog-eat-dog after all, isn't it? And I'm not going to be the mug that's not going to be top of the pile at the end of the day. Because we're all living in a game. Whoever, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Isn't that the way it goes? And of course, I, you know, I'm dramatising there, but... The reality is that many people in society operate on precisely that, that basis. They mightn't put it in such blunt or crude terms, but that's, that's the bottom line. And so we get a situation, as, as is suggested there, where you get some people have much more than they need, others, others are just sort of you know, getting over the fence, as it were, others, others just have no chance, they miss the game altogether. Bad luck, life's tough. Then next to that, equality, which is moving in a, in a positive direction. Equality, the assumption is that everyone benefits from the same supports. Uh, this is considered to be equal treatment. And I'm reminded of Thaleo, the, the mutual benefit, the, the, the I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back sort of thinking. Um, and uh, again, the, the idea of Thaleo where... Equality equals sameness. And, and it occurs to me that a lot of the calls for equality in our society uh, are pretty much coming from this foundation. Um, feminism would be a classic, radical feminism would be a classic uh, example of that. We've gone way beyond, um, you know, we're into or past the third wave of, of feminism. And I would, be, I would stand here proudly as a fan of the first two waves, frankly. Uh, the first one was back in the 1800s and the issue that of, of, of fairness, justice, social justice that was being sought was the right to vote for women. And we stand here today and we think, well, why would that ever be an issue? Well, it was an issue at one point, relatively recently. Um, countries like Australia, I think it was only the early 1900s before the, the women were given the right to, to vote, suffrage. So I'd say amen to that. I think that's biblical justice. I think that's righteous. And then I think it came on around the Second World War um, and we would be familiar with terms like equal pay for equal work following on from World War II, at least in Western countries like Australia, um, where, where there was a huge influx of women into the paid workforce. Uh, but a sense of discrepancy remained in terms of wages, just on the basis of being a male as opposed to a female, even though you're doing the same job, the male would be paid more than, than the female. Um, that's not fair. And so that second wave, I would say, amen, good movement. But the time we come to the third wave of feminism, hooked up with the 60s and all of the heady stuff, the sexual revolution, etc., the issue there is there is no difference between a man and a woman. Only what's socially imposed, and so that's where we get the idea you can't, don't, don't let boys play with guns or wear blue clothes because you're, just, you're socially conditioning him all of that sort of stuff, where the idea of equality now is not just about fairness, it's about sameness. Sameness. And, and if you're a thoughtful person, I think, you can, you can see the next connection with, with what we're faced today with the whole gender stuff that's going on in the Western world today. Gender fluidity, etc., 
The third one there, equity, everyone gets the support they need which produces equity. And I think this is getting closer to agape. Recognising the sameness, but we're also different. And because of those differences, different ones have different needs in different situations, different circumstances. And so that's what's going to cause us to think about a person with a disability, let's say, um, uh, limited to, for their mobility, limited to using a, a wheelchair. No less human than anybody else, any able-bodied person. It's just that they have a particular circumstance, a particular disability that limits them in some way. And so we build, we, we build buildings with ramps to accommodate. At least in recent decades we've started doing that. We build ramps to enhance the access for people with that sort of disability, for example. That's, I'd say, a, a, an example of equity. But you know what? God wants better for us even than that. Where we live in a society that's going to give attention to our relationships, agape, being considerate of one another, seeking to serve one another, we're going to get equity. But I think these questions are still worth asking. Why is the fence there in the first place? And what would it take to remove any need for the fence? Why is it there? And what would it take to remove the fence? You see, all of these scenarios, reality, equality, equity, they all presuppose that the fence is there and we're getting around the obstacle of the fence or not getting around it as the case may be. What would it take to remove it? Which brings us to this issue of justice which is about partiality and righteousness. All three can see the game, you'll notice, without supports for accommodations because the cause of the inequality or inequity was addressed. The systemic barrier has been removed. And in Christian terms, that systemic barrier is sin. And this is the note that I want to leave us with. It's a note of hopefulness. God wants us to live into this life, being a people concerned about justice. And biblically, we may or may not have remember hearing this before, I'm sure it's been said a number of times, biblically speaking, justice and righteousness are virtually used synonymously. Justice and righteousness go together hand in hand. Justice isn't just what I might determine to be fair, therefore justice rather is whatever God says is right. The kingdom of God, which we're a part of today as disciples of Christ and seeking to build in the world today a sin-filled world. We have the very real privilege of being partners, if you will, with God in his redemptive purposes for this sin-sick world but sometimes it feels like a losing battle man <laughs> sometimes sometimes it feels like it's just not working and it's precisely at times like that that we need to be reminded 
But this isn't all there is. You see, God is working now towards Martin Atilos, a goal, the end of the game, as it were, the end of God's purposes, described in scriptures as new heavens and new earth, where the kingdom of God will be the reality. That's what God's working towards. That's what we look forward to, a time when there will truly be justice and righteousness, etc. So to conclude with this statement, God wants us to see the world and others through his eyes, through the lens of justice and righteousness and grace. Mercy triumphs over judgment as long as we recognise our need for God's mercy, we can therefore be merciful to those around us. Mindful of our need for God's grace, we can be gracious towards those around us rather than getting caught up with the game of judgment, judging with evil thoughts. To embrace the grace and love of God in Christ is to destroy partiality. To embrace the grace and love of God in Christ is to destroy favoritism.